Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How you doing, Dave? Good, Matt. How are you? Doing pretty well. More snow this week, so it definitely feels like winter. I think uh, Punxsutawney Phil will be borne out by events, unfortunately for us, but you know, so you're, are, are you giving up on that conspiracy theory that you were trying to um, disseminate last week? Or the yeah, week before? yeah. I mean, I think it's possible that we are going to have six more weeks of winter. And if I put my, uh, you know, trust in in Phil the prognosticator, then I probably have to say that maybe it wasn't entirely a conspiracy at work. But but I still think I'd, I'd, I'd like to get the break, and I wish Phil were working for us as much as you know, we work for him. All right. Well, leading off to this week, we've got the Donald Trump impeachment trial, which apparently is going to wrap up today. We're recording this about noon Eastern time on Friday, the 12th, Abraham Lincoln's birthday. All the reports are this will be the last day of the trial and maybe a vote as soon as tomorrow. The Wall Street Journal says, Donald Trump's defense team will seek to rebut Democrats' allegations that he incited the January 6th U.S. Capitol riot in its first and only day of arguments on the Senate floor Friday, after Democrats spent two days using video footage and the former president's own words to make their case for impeachment. What do you make of the trial so far, Dave? Well, our subject for today is constitutional democracy versus tyrannical democracy. And and I guess that my judgment on the trial has to do with whether the trial is a trial that seeks to uh, revive the rule of law in American politics or whether or not in reality, it's just further pushing us apart and the Constitution and processes within the Constitution are being used or um, employed uh, by the Democratic Party uh, to uh, you know, further uh, undermine uh, their political opponents or argue that the political opponent, opponents are, are crazy and, and dangerous, et cetera. So that, that's kind of where I stand um, on, on basically general principle on the impeachment. How about yourself, Matt? I think if you're looking at the merits of the case, it's, it's, it's somewhat striking that there's not really a parallel argument that's being advanced here, right? The defense doesn't seem like they're going to rebut the prosecution's case on its own terms, um, but but rather, I think, stand on the ground of a broad, you know, we're, we're, we're defending the Constitution with respect to the trial itself, and we're defending the right of First Amendment speech rather than really defending President Trump's actions and, and saying, no, actually, this was very presidential, what he did on January 6th and in the months leading up to that. The reason why I have some difficulty with that argument about <clears throat> Trump's actions uh, after the election, which I, I, don't, I don't think that they were presidential. I don't think that uh, it was the right, right way to respond to the election. But I think four or five months ago, we, we on the show uh, mentioned a, a group of um, Democrats and left-leaning Republicans had gotten together and they had kind of uh, done a scenario of various scenarios about what would happen with the election. Remember that conversation, Matt? Yep. And and most of that conversation went at no point should Joe Biden concede to a Trump electoral victory. Is that that, that was the understanding of that article, correct? That that you try every single means possible to do that. Now, we're hearing right that um, that there was a group of people that were brought together to kind of discuss how to strategize uh, on public opinion in and around the election, and one of the uh, one of the things that that uh, these people did well after the election is kind of they held off or held back those protests uh, that they had planned to unleash um, had uh, Donald Trump won a close victory. So it, it kind of makes me think, Matt, that regardless of the outcome of this election, there would have been protests, there would have been riots. Now, I can imagine that many a Republican senator and congressman had those riots been uh, riots of Antifa uh, members, uh, BLM members, and any, any kind of individuals who were uh, antagonistic towards Trump, 
that they may even be banging the drums, right, of, of some prosecution of Vice President Biden right now. So it, it, it strikes me that the whole thing is political and that it's not really a matter of safeguarding the Capitol or safeguarding the constitutional processes. It's just kind of getting back at your political enemy. So that's not to defend what Trump has done, but to suggest that the other side would have done the same thing had the election gone the other way. Yeah, I think that's the biggest difficulty in all this is to separate out what is the the purely partisan and and certainly the motives on both sides. And there's some some partisan motives at work. It's not an accident that most individuals, as they examine the constitutional question of whether a president, former president, could be tried, came down on the side that their party line favors. Right? That that's not accidental, probably. And as you're saying, some of the the, the effort to bring this case forward is certainly motivated by bipartisan desires and designs. And so I think this is where, really honestly, I feel like this has been the whole story of the Trump presidency. And, and maybe this is just where we are in politics, where you're, where you're constantly being forced to sift through and distinguish, okay, yeah, but even if the motive is wrong, it could still be right to prevent Donald Trump from holding office again. That, that could be actually a just outcome of all this. I'm trying to sift through what is a responsible way of reacting to these events, as we've been trying to say all along, how do we apply the constitution to this and, and do it in a way that upholds the rule of law, that pushes back against hyper-partisanship on both sides? You know, what, what do we do with all this? I think we just try to navigate it the best way we can by the clearest lights available to us and, and, and recognize that some of these calls are just going to be tough calls, right? And that, and that this is maybe one of those where you just, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at the margins and you're trying to weigh, okay, what's, how do we do the least damage <laughs> to the rule of law and the constitution in this situation? All right. Well, we'll have more to say on that as we move along and we'll come back to the question of the impeachment trial later on in the show. But for now, let's shift our focus to the required reading and take a look at the next selections that we have from Democracy in America. So we're now up to our fifth part of our study of Tocqueville's Democracy in America that will end up being 15 parts. So after today, we'll be one third of the way through our coverage of Democracy in America. We began that coverage by taking a look at Tocqueville's intentions in writing the work, what he thought was wrong or perhaps dangerous in the movement towards democracy in the modern world, and what opportunities there were as the world became more democratic. He then shifts his focus to American democracy and the earlier history of American democratic institutions, or at least an American way of life that lends itself to the people's sovereignty and eventually produces the democratic republic under the federal constitution. So now the question uh, near the end of volume one is, will this federal republic that has been founded in the United States, will it perpetuate into the future and will it lead to flourishing of the American people? So a little bit of what he does here as he closes out volume one of democracy in America is he plays the part of both defense attorney of American democracy and prosecution. Very timely. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So he's, he's fair in, in making the case that there are elements of American democracy that will tend to its betterment. And we're going to cover some of those today when he goes through the real advantages that American society derives from the government of democracy. Uh, even though he mentions the omnipotence of the majority in the United States, he's going to come back uh, in what we begin next week and tell us what tempers the tyranny of the majority in the United States and what principal causes tend to maintain a democratic republic before ending volume one with some really sharp criticism of what could be a movement towards despotism, uh, given the present state of the three races on the continent and some issues uh, undermining the American Union uh, in the 1830s. So back and forth uh, over the next two or three weeks, really democracy is on trial for Tocqueville. So let's start with his uh, defense of American democracy. This is chapter six, uh, beginning on page 220 of your following. 
in the Winthrop Mansfield edition uh, titled, What are the Real Advantages that American Society Derives from the Government of Democracy? So he opens this discussion by saying that the American form of democracy is only one form. And it's not the only or the best form that a democratic people can adopt. A really interesting statement there that there could be a better democracy than American democracy. He'll perhaps go into what that is as we move forward. And he'll say that there are some other advantages that you could have if you had a different democracy than the American one or the one based upon American laws. So what does American democracy have going for it? Well, Oftentimes, when Tocqueville takes up the subject, he'll do so based upon the general tendency of the laws. The laws are essential to American democracy running properly. So how do democracies, and in particular American democracies, how do they make laws? Well, he often says the way we make laws is defective. It's incomplete. They sometimes violate right. Dangerous. There's a, a great frequency of laws coming into being and going out of being. And here I remember my time in the New Hampshire legislature. I just served <laughs> one term where it was remarkable how many laws 400 state representatives could bring in one session. I think at one time we had over a thousand different pieces of legislation. Oftentimes you, you knew nothing what you were voted voting on uh, other than what the, the whip suggested was in the bill, uh, et cetera, which, which led to a whole bunch of laws that were too frequent, uh, problematic, uh, et cetera. So he, he tells us basically that democracy as a form of government is not the ideal means to put into place laws. However, it, it may be the ideal means to fix bad laws, because within democracy, the mistakes that you make in legislation can be repairable a year, another session, or 10 years down the road. He also says that because the people are very involved in the government, that they're attentive to the faults of of public officials. So this makes the public officials not have interests much different than the governed. He says, quote, they will never systematically follow a tendency hostile to the majority. Are they corrupt and incapable? Yes. But do they collude against the people? Answer is no. And this is this is something that will will uphold uh, democracy and uphold some level of good legislation in America. Second point that he says that the United States has going forward in terms of the way its democracy functions is that there's a, a great public spirit that, that runs through the country. Uh, the spirit of the city, he writes, seems to me inseparable from the exercise of political rights. Americans know what their political rights are, and they're spirited in their defense of those rights. This leads Tocqueville at this point to say, there's nothing more annoying in the habits of life than this irritable patriotism of the Americans. <laughs> Well, only said by a Frenchman. So, but as much as uh, the, you can tell that the Americans who probably spoke of legislation and spoke of the rights of the American people got on his nerves, he'll then go on to say that, that this language of rights is excellent because it's, it amounts to uh, virtue uh, being translated into the political world. So uh, an individual who is clinging to their rights is clinging to the idea that they can practice uh, their rights, that they can exercise their rights in a way that leads to a more perfect ordering of their own soul and a per- more perfect ordering of the soul of the community. So it, it gives an open opportunity to talk about the language of virtue uh, that is encouraged by the respect uh, for rights. And this in turn leads Americans to have a respect for the law. Because the people make the laws, the people tend to obey the laws. Because the people engage in elections and majorities are chosen from those elections, it's difficult thereafter to attack the laws that come from those majorities. So this general tendency within the United States uh, to embrace uh, the political activity and embrace the outcome of that political activity because one has made a choice and in making that choice, one has been ennobled and hence one um, embraces the overall process of 
of uh, democracy. All good up until this point. And then he shifts uh, to prosecutorial mold, and he'll talk about in chapter seven on the omnipotence of the majority in the United States and its effect. And here he begins to talk about this really interesting question. It's been a question throughout uh, political philosophy. Who should rule and who has the intellectual or moral qualities that make them able to rule? Does the one individual or do the few individuals in society have that ability to make the right moral or intellectual choices? Or do you take the concept of equality and do you apply it to one's intellectual and moral capabilities? Here he says in the United States, quote, the moral empire of the majority is founded and justified on the principle that the interests of the greatest number ought to be preferred to those of the few. Note the change in language. It's not that the merits of the greatest number or the virtue of the greatest number ought to be preferred to those of the few. It's the interests of the greatest number ought to be preferred to those of the few. So it's interest that becomes the standard that suggests the moral rightness or intellectual rightness of that majority. And of course, we know that that's a kind of faulty standard to use, the standard of interest, because you can make it in your interest to tyrannize over another human being, or the majority likewise can make it in their interest uh, to do the same. But that is the basis uh, that gives the majority its power in the United States. And this in turn has led to the legislative instability that he mentions in chapter six, and might thereafter lead toward a future danger, that being the tyranny of the majority. Tyranny of the majority is brought about, and we talked about this uh, in our last podcast, is brought about when the many are won over to an individual who suggests to them that, that, that he ought to forward uh, their rights, he ought to forward uh, their freedoms, and then he begins to use that power against the enemies uh, of, the, of the majority. And this produces for Tocqueville, in, in the case of democracy, a majority that goes outside the limits of justice and reason. So up until this point of his argument, Matt, uh, where would you see his, uh, the, the flow of his case relative to where we were last week? And then, of course, we're going to talk about this you know, further in the headlines. How, how is it applied to what we're seeing in American democracy today? Yeah, well, one of the things that I think is just so valuable in de Tocqueville's approach in democracy in America, and which is so evident in the passages that you've just described, is this Aristotelian style analysis of regimes. And he's going to give you the regime as it is, not the regime as its advocates suggest it ought to be or, or suppose it to be. And so I think what we've seen, even, even where he's going through this positive case for democracy, there's this qualified sense implicit in that, that it is really the majority that's being served by this. And the majority, not only is the majority interest not justice per se, but it's only the majority interest. And so that's not all, right? The, the real good popular regime would be the rule of all for all toward the common good, right? That, that would be the ideal type of a popular regime. And what he's saying is at least 19th century America doesn't have that. It has the rule of the majority. It has attributes of a democratic society that we can trace all the way back to Aristotle's account of democracy. I know we're going to get to Aristotle as the adjacent reading in just a few minutes, but I, I think that, you know, the Tocqueville is the modern Aristotle, right? He, he's, he's giving us a modern account of regimes. And now we've got aristocracy and democracy, right? And, and we've got new models that are emerging. This democratic world is going to give you this, this clear-eyed analysis of that. And I think, you know, you asked the question about the application to our own present concerns. I think this is, this is what we'll be getting to see as we, as we analyze the way that elections election victories are weaponized, you say, well, we won, therefore, right? Therefore, we get what we want. Uh, therefore, the majority interest, as we understand it, 
will, will be advanced. And the idea that you'd have to build a consensus toward an all, that it's really the common good that you're trying to serve, that, that's not so evident. Right? We, we have, we have the, the language sometimes of common good. But when you examine the measures, you know, you think about, just as an example, the, the Biden administration's approach to opening public schools, right? And the promise, we're going to get public schools open 100 days. We're going to get this done. President Trump dropped the ball here. We got to get the kids back in schools. And, you know, just yesterday, his spokeswoman is, is talking about, well, what we meant by that was half the schools open at least one day a week. Oh, okay. I thought we were not all the schools, but they set the bar so low. And, and why is it they're struggling to do this? Well, because we know the teachers unions are pushing back hard. And, and there's a political coalition here you're trying to hold together. And so all the talk about science and the common good and the children and all that is, is being run through a certain political lens, a, a coalitional lens that includes a majority perhaps, right? A governing majority, but not the whole and not the interests of the entire community in view. So what is this force of, of American democracy and how does it exert itself on the political process? It's really interesting because when we think of the force of the majority, we could say, okay, it's, it's the majority that serves in the federal government. But that's not really where Tocqueville is going here in talking about this, this majority entity in the United States. The majority entity seems to be this, this kind of swaying public opinion that exerts itself on people. It, it's almost, you, you can't see where it's coming from, but, but when it hits you, you're, you're bowled over by it. He goes on to say at some point that however iniquitous or unreasonable is the measure that strikes you, you must submit to it. So there are inherent guards against tyranny as established by the founders and framers of the constitution, but those don't seem to be up against the challenge of combating that, that majority entity, that, that majority force. In fact, it sometimes even infects them and in how they do the job, do their job. So they'll tend to take the idea that somehow the majority is behind them and it leads to, he says, a, the legal despotism of the legislator or the arbitrariness of, of, of the magistrate. And perhaps we're seeing a little bit of that uh, going on in 2021 as well. But more so than anything, I think he, he, he identifies the great problem with this majority in how it changes the way that the people think about themselves and, and think about their political community, the power that it exerts or exercises over their thought. You can't weigh thought. You can't measure thought, right? It's, it's invisible, but it's powerful, right? Ideas have consequences. So if there's a sense there that there's a majority idea that is right, you may not be able to point to how that majority idea was formed. And perhaps it, it could even be a pseudo majority or a pseudo reality. But once it's there, you know it's there and you know how it shapes people and has them bend around its power. And I think this is why he suggests in, in our democratic age where the power of that, that majority force is intellectual and social, that it'll far outdo uh, far outmaneuver the power that kings or czars or Caesars had in the past that was material and kind of rested upon the, uh, the sword being employed. Uh, the majority finds its way into every aspect of our life. And furthermore, because we don't have public officials who are up to the challenge of fighting it or combating it, it, it may very well, at the end of the day, it may do us in, which is, which is where he ends this whole discussion in uh, chapter seven. He'll go into uh, the, the reality that even the greatest cheerleaders of democracy, none other than uh, Thomas Jefferson, believes what? That if we're going to be undone as, as a nation, we're going to be undone by the tendency towards the omnipotence or tyranny of the majority. Yeah, I think that's that's fascinating when you think, as, as Toko points out, I mean, Jefferson's the best cheerleader democracy has in the founding era. And you think about his sidekick, Madison, who's raising 
the same kinds of questions in Federalist 51 as in Tocqueville Sites and other places. So there's no question, every, every regime has a tendency toward a certain kind of injustice. And this is the kind of injustice that democratic regimes tend toward, right? The, the, the disguising of the interest of the majority as the good of all. He's, he's able to expose some of the pretense that goes along with democratic societies. And I think that's where, where, he's, where he's getting at here, right? Is, is the power of this majority is, is unseen and often unfelt unless you find yourself against the majority. And yet to find yourself out of step with the majority is, is an uncomfortable place in a democratic society. So Jefferson's words, if ever freedom is lost in America, one will have to blame the omnipotence of the majority that will have brought minorities to despair and have forced them to make an appeal to material force. So anyway, you had previewed this earlier by uh, labeling, I think rightly, Tocqueville, the modern Aristotle. And certainly as the we move to the adjacent reading in Aristotle's politics, a book four of Aristotle's politics, there's a lot there foundationally in the way that Aristotle sorts out regimes that Tocqueville will employ in his assessment uh, of, of America. And one of the things I think that's important to remember here, we all remember that Plato is the student of, uh, excuse me, Plato is a student of Socrates, Aristotle is a student of Plato. And Aristotle, uh, he is, is apt at times where Plato will suggest something about the world that we live in, human nature, et cetera, to agree. But in places where he thinks that Plato through Socrates has suggested something incomplete or wrong, uh, Aristotle will move to correct that aspect of politics. And, and certainly on the question of regimes, Aristotle gives us a very different understanding of how regimes work than Plato. If you go back to our discussion last week, one of the interesting things after the best regime is created in Plato's Republic is it dissolves and it moves from being the rule of the wise philosopher king to being the rule of men of honor, uh, and then being the rule of the wealthy. And then finally, the rule of freedom and equality, what we know as democracy, until we have the final collapse from democracy into tyranny. So there's a cycle of regimes for Plato, and the cycle always goes downhill. It's like a declinist theory of, of political history. And Aristotle doesn't believe that regimes cycle or have to cycle in such a way. And certainly, you can go from better to worse, but you can also go from worse to better. So how do you go from worse to better? Well, you take the regime that you're living in. It could be an oligarchy, a democracy, a tyranny, a, a monarchy. And you try to figure out what are the aspects of that regime that can be corrected and how do you reinforce those aspects or have those aspects revived within a regime? So this certainly this would be the case with democracy as well. Aristotle argues that there are a variety of different democracies. The best kind or first kind of democracy is one in which there is actual equality, that there's no difference, uh, perhaps, between how the poor and the rich are understood because neither is sovereign. Both are alike. But key to that preservation of that form of democracy, it, where freedom, he says, is chiefly found, is the rule of law the full extent alike of sharing equally in the government and the law that flows out of that participation produces a democracy that functions well. And we just saw this in Tocqueville, right? That Tocqueville had suggested that a good part of what makes legislation correct in the United States is that the people participated. They had a function, they had an action, they had a role to play. Now, it may not be the same intimate role that they played at the beginning of the 17th or late 17th or early 18th century as they gathered together in town halls, but there's always been an element to American lawmaking that is drawn from the people. And as long as the people respect the law and have the right public spirit, then that democracy is going to be in good stead. A second type of democracy Aristotle describes is one in which all the citizens are not open to the challenge to have a share in the office, he says, but the law still rules. Third type of democracy is one, there's a qualification in being a citizen, but once again, the law still rules. 
And you get down to the, the last type of democracy that is described, and I'll read from Aristotle's politics. He says, another kind of democracy is where all the other regulations are the same. And here's the important quote, but the multitude is sovereign and not the law. But the multitude is sovereign and not the law. And this comes about when the decrees of the assembly override the law. And he argues this state of things is brought about by the demagogues for in the state under democratic government guided by law, a demagogue does not rise, but the best classes of citizens are in the most prominent position. But where the laws are not sovereign, the, then demagogues arise for the common people become a single composite monarch since the many are sovereign, not as individuals, but collectively. Uh, this is a very, very dangerous scenario because in this scenario, it's not the law that holds the community together and a notion of the common good of the community together. It's the whim of the numbers of the multitude, a whim that could be driven by interest. It could be driven by envy. It could be driven by a variety of different things, but to the degree it breaks a people free from the rule of law, it is dangerous. And the difficulty is that that can look still like the rule of law. So you can pass something as a law that looks like it follows all the forms of the constitution. And if the substance of the law is such that it's not, right? It's an act of, of a mob. Uh, it's, a, it's an act of injustice. And so I think that's, you know, as de Tocqueville is analyzing the challenges of the democratic scene that he's observing and deference to the majority to be able to respond and say, yeah, but... Right. Of course, you could pass that law, but ought you to pass that law? And is that law, even if it is available to you under the Constitution, really consistent with the broader principle of equal justice, so the broader presuppositions upon which a democratic society is built? So this will be great as we move into next week's reading. So note here, once again, the argument that I'm making is that Tocqueville plays the part of defense attorney and prosecutor of American democracy. So he's going to further the case for democracy by arguing that the absence of administrative centralization, the spirit of the lawyer and the jury help protect against the tyranny of the majority in the United States. So it'd be interesting, like what are those institutions? How are those institutions understood by Americans today? But what I'd like everyone to read for next week, if you're following along in the Mansfield uh, translation, is chapter nine on the principal causes tending to maintain a democratic republic in the United States. So that begins on page 264. And I'd like everyone to read right up until page 291. The last part of that chapter is titled How the Enlightenment, the Habits, and the Practical Experience of the Americans contribute to the success of democratic institutions. So more defense for next week until we come back the week following and the week thereafter uh, to another prosecution by Tocqueville of democracy in America. Sounds great. Well, let's turn to the headlines as we try to see some of the application of all this. And you know, we closed our discussion of the Tocqueville talking about the tyranny of the majority. And it seems to me that embedded in his analysis of that are maybe three different levels of that tyranny. And so we were just talking about the legal side of that, you know, the legal tyranny that the majority might exercise if we want to use kind of figurative language over the body of the citizen, right? Over your material means and that sort of thing. And there's a second level of the tyranny of the majority that you also mentioned. We might call that the psychological tyranny of majoritarian opinion over the mind, right? The way that it impresses upon us the burden of adopting certain views or, or the feeling of um, a separation with one's neighbors if one doesn't adopt those views. And then the th third is this social tyranny of majoritarian community over the soul. And he, he talks about the fact that, you know, you can, you can live as a contrarian in a democratic society, but you won't feel like you're a part of that community. And it, it's difficult right, to, to feel that distance. 
and it's maybe related to the this, the second point, right? This sort of psychological and 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 felt sense of of separation from one's neighbors. So we talked it's like being a conservative in graduate school. Exactly. This is how we became friends, right? <laughs> right. This is you find the other one, and twenty five years later, you're doing a podcast. So. Mm-hmm. There can be a happy ending to the story, but it's not without its challenges along the way. Last week, we talked about the political rule of the majority and it's kind of that, that first legal tyranny. And we were just discussing that briefly just a moment ago. So we're going to focus on the second part of this this time and the way that majoritarian opinion can impress a kind of tyrannical control over the mind. Um, and, you know, you, again, you can, I think, appreciate this and maybe you've ever been in a situation um, kind of at a micro level where you're in a conversation with just a couple other people and you find, you know, you don't agree. You're the one who doesn't agree, right? It's two against one. And, 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 you know, it's, it's okay. You have the conversation. It's pleasant enough, but there's this feeling like, Oh, hmm, I, I, maybe I should agree with them. And, and I don't having had these conversations in the past. One of the moves that that two will often make against the one is to say, Oh, you're so close-minded. You're so close-minded. And, you know, you could be thinking to yourself, well, wait a second, I'm no more closed-minded than, than you are. Neither of us switched our positions. But there's a majoritarian principle there because what are you doing? If you're holding out against the majority, you're saying you're smarter than us. Your one is better than our two. How could that be, right? We, in, in, in Democratic says we count and two is greater than one. So we have the presumptive right to dictate what's true. And you're not agreeing with that. So are you really saying you're not our equal? You're our superior? You see, it's like a democratic sin to be the one holding out against the two. So, you know, maybe you felt that, right? In, in past experiences where you were discussing things with people and again, you found yourself in the minority. It's uncomfortable. Um, it's not really tyranny. I think that, that's, that's strong, right? That's, that, that's strong. But what we're beginning to see, I think, in our, in our society is that there is a sense in which people are feeling tyrannized and, and that their material livelihood at least is threatened if, if they're not willing to conform to certain social expectations, political expectations, right? And certain, hold, hold certain ideas, articulate certain ideas. And, and what I think may be most interesting about this is that those ideas don't seem to represent the majority's view, right? This is, this is what's strange. Right. We, we expect in a, democ- a democracy that the majority view will be powerful. But what if in a democracy, it's a small minority somehow whose view is actually the most powerful? So just as we're thinking about that, just bring in this interesting uh, Cato Institute study from last summer. Uh, so they, they, they surveyed people and they did this three years ago as well, asking um, questions about how they feel about the political climate and their, their freedom to express their political views. And so one question they asked was, do you find yourself um, you know, sort of self-censoring when it comes to your political views in the fear others will be offended? And of course, many, many said yes, but they broke it down ideologically. It was 77% who were either strong conservative or just conservative who said they self-censor, 64% of moderates, 52% of liberals, 42% of strong liberals. So it's a nice, smooth decline, right? As you go from the most conservative to the most progressive, you become more comfortable with sharing your views. And you say, well, it makes sense because obviously the you know, liberals are the vast majority in this country. Wait a second. They're not the vast majority in this country. Right? You go back and you've got lots of data on this. Gallup's been asking these questions for, for many, many years. And the, and the most recent poll just came out in January. 36% of Americans call themselves conservative or very conservative, 35% moderate, only 25% liberal or very liberal. And when you look at that 25%, the very liberal is probably somewhere around 7 or 8%. You can look at other, other data that suggests. So, so here's, here's where we are, right? That 8% is the least worried about sharing their political views, Whereas the 36%, the largest group, is the most worried. This is a very unusual thing for a democratic society. That would make sense in an aristocracy of sorts, right? Where that 8% had, had, had the power over the community. But in a democracy, it shouldn't go this way. What, what do you make of that, Dave? 
Well, I think it goes back to something that you said in, when you put forward the scenario of two people arguing one thing and one person arguing the other. There's an inherent moral superiority that is assumed by the two because they believe that their numerical equality outdoes whatever you have to say uh, in reverse. So there's an expression, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. But in this case, under that guise <laughs> of, of numerical equality, they, they always do. So in, a, in the democratic age that we live in, the argument that tends to be more progressive, you know, right, tends to be further to the left, made for numerical equality, assumes right, the moral superiority going into any discussion, whether it's about taxes or homelessness or immigration or whatever it may be. So I sense that there's a lack of confidence, perhaps sometimes an earned lack of confidence among those who consider themselves strong conservatives or conservatives, that they, they identify that way, but they're not quite certain about the argument or the witness they're going to make for their position because they, they know that the general trend of the culture is, is coming against them. It's, they're, they're, they're going against where the culture is. It reminds me of uh, Whitaker Chambers' witness, right, where he talks about he thinks he's in, in leaving behind communism uh, for uh, his kind of American republicanism, he's choosing the losing side. And the reason why, he doesn't believe that those who will forward the position that is Christian and liberal will be able to bear and give witness to what they believe in as equally a forcible and confident way as their Marxist counterparts. So I think there's a lot of that, I think, that, that, that is going on. The, the overall, at the meta level, the overall understanding of justice tends towards numerical equality rather than proportionate equality. And that kind of that distorts justice. Does that make sense? Yeah, but it's a very interesting place to land, isn't it? Where, where the 8% who should be numerically inferior by the old, by their own standard actually are more powerful than their numbers because their argument is an appeal to a numerical standard, even though the numbers actually aren't on their side in terms of their ideology. And the group that has the largest numerical number, because their argument is not an appeal to a numerical standard of justice, feels less comfortable with their argument in a democratic society. Very, very interesting twist. The recent case of, of Don McNeil, there's you know, different versions of the story of, of why he was forced to resign his position at the New York Times. But when he apologized, when he resigned, the apology centered on his use of a racial slur during a trip with students to Peru, where he was responding to a question about what should happen to a student who had used that same slur on a video as a 12-year-old. Should they be suspended from school? Or, and so as he was trying to inquire further about the context in which the slur was used, he repeated the slur. And so students who were there were, were shocked and offended by this. They reported it back. It was investigated by the New York Times. Initially, they, they reprimanded him, but, but didn't fire him. But then there were a number among the employees of the New York Times that wanted to push further. And so that led to his, his resignation then naturally there was a lot of pushback on that as it seemed like there was a lack of appreciation for the context in which he'd use this term. When this kind of pushback came, its executive editor wrote, we do not tolerate racist language regardless of intent. There's a longer email that he sent out to the community of the New York Times there, but that was the, uh, the key point. We do not tolerate racist language regardless of intent. And Brett Stevens, who's one of the columnists, conservative columnist at the New York Times, wrote a column criticizing the last three words, regardless of intent, that was the title of the piece, and arguing that it was a fundamental betrayal of the most basic function of journalism, which is to try to you know, get at intent and to try to get behind the words and to, to push and to understand and, and to then make that clear to those that you're trying to inform as, as a journalist. Article was never published because the New York Times decided they didn't want to run it. And he said it was because of the publisher. And then the uh, opinion editor said that, no, she was the one that ended up making the call on it. 
but it was printed in the New York Post. So you can actually read the piece if you're interested in seeing that. But what it did, among other things, was point out that the New York Times had used the same word in reporting on stories repeatedly, uh, where obviously context did matter. It wasn't using it as a slur. It was using it to try to understand what somebody else was saying and to make sense of that. And then it turned out that their star writer, reporter, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the lead author of the 1619 report last year, had used it in, on social media. And, and so is it really the case that context doesn't matter, that there's no tolerance and context doesn't matter? And so then just yesterday at a staff meeting, the, the same executive editor revised his position. And he says, in our zeal to make a powerful statement about our workplace culture, we ham-handedly said something that some of you rightly saw as threatening our journalism. It was an oversimplification of one of the most difficult issues in American life. Uh, he said it was a deadline mistake, and I regret it. Of course, intent matters when we're talking about language and journalism. Okay, so you know he concedes the point. But what's interesting is it doesn't really change anything because McNeil is still fired, and Brett Stevens' piece still didn't get published. And so, leaving aside whether there are other reasons to fire Don McNeil or whether you know Brett Stevens merits as a columnist, leaving aside all those issues, what what we see here is, is the way that this dominant majoritarian culture can, can shift its standards, right? Shift, shift the target, miss the target, right? And then readjust, aim again, miss the target again, and, and still have no consequence when it comes to what happens to the parties that have been hurt by, by its misjudgments and failed actions. Yeah, I think as you you rightly mentioned, Matt, uh, the inquisition has occurred. Uh, the elect will continue on with further inquisitions, regardless of uh, whatever corrections are, are printed. And the the great danger here, and going back to something we were saying earlier about uh, justice as equality, is you can believe that uh, uh, you can think of justice in terms of proportionate equality that that you, you have just desert. So one act uh, justly deserves one consequence or one argument justly deserves uh, to hold sway based upon its merits. But when you move to numerical equality, you're moving toward a standard whereby it's the majority that suggests what justice is simply by their number. But I think another shift has, has gone on here in this instance and is going on as we move toward wokeness as a religion in America, and we even see it in the language that's being used around these issues, as we move uh, from equality as justice to equity as justice, you move further away from that standard of right, law, evidence, et cetera, and simply there's a payback mechanism. So you don't even have to be the majority to indict another. You can be, in this case, a very small minority or very loud uh, minority that is suggesting wrong has been done, and you get the verdict, and you get the consequence uh, that you're after. And, and I think that the danger with that, Matt, is that if you know, equity sounds like a good word applied to justice until you realize that part of that movement from equality to equity is a movement toward might makes right. Uh, it's not necessarily the tyranny of the majority. It's the tyranny of the elect who claim a majority status. Yeah, which brings us back to that Cato survey. So you think about this willingness to use force in certain sense against one's opponents. The same survey found that 50% of strong liberals favored firing a business executive if it were discovered that he privately donated to the Trump campaign. And on the other side, 36% of strong conservatives considered a fireable offense to donate to Joe Biden. So less, but not that many less. And this is really a, a very interesting question to ask because, you know, from your experience with political campaigns, there are actually public records available on these things, right? You give donations to a campaign, they have to take down your name and take down your occupation. And, you know, it doesn't guarantee that it's identifiable to a single person, but in a smaller community, you know who we're talking about. And so you're saying that there are 
large numbers of people, many of whom are no doubt in positions of authority where they have control, right, over the, the careers of those beneath them who are willing to use political differences and the small matter of a political donation to one's major party opponent as, as grounds for, for firing somebody. I think this is, you know, one of the things that we're really reckoning with is, and to go back to the way you framed it, the move from equality to equity, the, the difficulty is not that equity is an inferior standard to equality. In some ways, equity is obviously superior, right? Justice is superior to rule of law. That's Aristotle's point about the rule of law. It's limited. It doesn't get it all right. But the problem is it requires somebody to exercise a discretion that is too easily clouded by personal interest, by ideological blinders, right? The rule of law is, is the next best option, but it's the next best option to the rule of a perfectly wise, perfectly powerful, and perfectly just God. And we don't have those among us to elevate to positions of political authority. Well, but don't ask them whether we have that, because they suggest that, that we do have that, that there's a perfect wisdom involved. Hence that lack of humility, liberality, and all the other competencies that help a democratic or republic function are not present among the inquisitors, right, who are judging what equity will be. Equity without a common good as a standard Right, can be uh, misinformed and can turn into might makes right. And that's, that's the, I think, the, the issue that I have with, with that turn. So, um, if angels yeah. were to govern men. Exactly. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. But let's turn to the grade book now. We've reached that difficult period, Dave. Football season is over. No baseball until April Fool's Day. The, the, the winter doldrums while we wait for spring to come, at least here in the Northeast. What is a sports fan to do? All right, so here's your first option. Catch up on some reading. Might be a good, good idea to dust off some of the classics. I don't know if you saw this, Dave, earlier in the week, but a little bit of an embarrassing moment for Andrea Mitchell. Um, Ted Cruz compared the impeachment trial to sound and fury signifying nothing and uh, attributed that, of course, to Shakespeare. And she responds, no, that's Faulkner. Ouch. <laughs> Where did Faulkner get it from? I like, I like Ben Shapiro's response. He said the other day, somebody said, as Solomon said, to everything there is a season. No, that's the birds. Nice. Exactly. Right. Very so, so maybe, you know, Andrew Mitchell and the rest of us can read Macbeth or whatever other literature we've been neglecting over the course of the football season. Reading always gets an A in, in my book. I, I don't, I still, you know, I try to read as much as I can, but um, when you have a little time, it's, it's just such, such a great thing, uh, especially a, a book. There's something about reading a book that uh, replenishes your tank uh, even more than an essay here or there or an op-ed. Uh, so yeah, uh, an A for that. That's true. And I think the chance to get back into great literature and engage those characters and those plots and kind of the imagination of the great authors is like you say, rejuvenative. And we could use some rejuvenation probably coming off the political season and all the other challenges. So I'm going to give that an A as well. All right. Second option. I could see you doing a little bit of this, Dave binge college basketball, right? We all like to be experts come March madness and have our thoughts about who's going to go far and, you know, you can pull it off if you've been around college sports long enough. You kind of know the big teams to, to talk about. But, you know, this year, Duke, below 500. Kentucky, 5-13 and 13, the last time I checked. So I don't think it's going to work to just pick the, the old Blue Bloods and expect them to take you to March Madness uh, triumph. So what about catching up a little bit on the college basketball scene, Dave? Well, all, all the great teams right now, or a lot of the great teams are from Texas, which is odd. I think they had like four or five in the top 10. I still think, what is it? February 12th. Okay. It's Lincoln's birthday. Still a little early for me. <laughs> that, that comes around March 5th to 10th. And uh, then I'll, you know, I'll begin to look at those tournaments. I don't know if they'll have them this year to, to get my predictions ready for March Madness. So uh, I'll, I'll give that a, a, a C, uh, way too much to keep track of. And, and I just haven't been there for two or three months prior. So uh, wait until next month. I, yeah, I just, I can't really watch college basketball, even if I wanted to. It's just, 
I don't, I, just don't have enough, I don't have enough stake in it. The, the, the game doesn't excite me enough. Um, the, you know, the athletes are good, but they're not NBA quality athletes. So it doesn't quite capture my attention. So I will have to just let that go and, and do my best with the random picks or let my kids make the picks for March Madness and, and, and we'll see how we do. I will say this, however, if, if I'm turning on ESPN two or three or seven and I see Duke losing, I'll, I'll watch until the end of the game. <laughs> Just kind of the Christian Leitner effect still 20, 25 years later. Wow. You know, I, I always root against him. So, yeah. Yeah. I was rooting for him that day against Kentucky. I, I still remember that, that incredible turnaround jump shot. All right. Option three. How about watching some golf? I don't know, you know, you, you've got green everywhere you turn, but not out our my window. I got a lot of white. So, you know, caught a little bit of golf last weekend. It was nice to see that grass. And, you know, just the idea of, of, of golf, sort of an optimism embedded in that. And you've got some good tournaments. I mean, you, you can go to Pebble Beach this weekend, Dave, just about five hours north of you. Probably the most beautiful golf course in the world. And they're playing up there. You've got the tournament players championship, pretty big tournament. You've got masters of course in early April. So I don't know. What do you think? Tune into the golf. Yeah. I mean, I'll just go up there and drop a couple thousand for, <laughs> for a hotel room up there. And I make hundreds of thousands and, you know, in, in my role, but no, actually more recently I've, I've gotten back into it because, um, uh, my my favorite uh, player, uh, Spieth, is is seemingly getting uh, back. He's on the leaderboard right now, and and had a pretty good run last week as well. So, yeah, I always like to watch him play. He really hasn't had the best uh, uh, two years here, but uh, maybe he's on the rebound. So I, I would definitely kind of check in. And and the other thing on a Sunday, it's just a very peaceful like a that's one of the you know nice peaceful thing in the background to have that golf going. And I can see how you could say you know being in the snow there to see the the grass is is uh it reminds you of spring so I'll, I'll give that a b yeah i i tend to check into golf this time of year and and enjoy that so i'm going to give that a b plus and all right well, let's turn as we wrap up the show to de tocqueville's crystal ball dave your your run in 2021 continued with the super bowl sort of i mean to be fair you did pick the chiefs to win but you said that the bucks would cover so you get credit for that you had the under so you get credit for that so you're six and three now on on the new year Uh, i am the opposite of that unfortunately three and six i had the chiefs winning by four at least and uh, did have the under so i've done so well matt this year six and three and I'm not even kidding here. We're we're going to Vegas this weekend, baby. And we're well, we're not we're going for one night, but we're we're ending up at the Grand Canyon, uh, which the kids want to see. But don't think that uh, I won't be tempted to lay down a hundred dollars on the Patriots, uh, who I saw are fifty-five to one odds to win the next Super Bowl. That's a good payout. That might even buy me half a seat at the Super Bowl next year. So yeah, I, I, I've turned a corner here. I, I think as long as we keep it to like one prediction a week, I, I could, I could be on a roll. So what's the prediction for this week? Okay. Yeah. So it's going to be politics, not, not golf and not college basketball this time around. So we've got the final vote on the impeachment. We're going to go kind of football style though here and, and give you an over under over under 55 and a half votes to convict Dave. So we, we know we got the five that have kind of voted consistently on the Republican side in ways that suggest at least they're open to a conviction. And then we had Bill Cassidy who joined that group with the most recent vote. So we have 56 people that, that seem at least open to conviction. Although there's others that maybe are out there as well. We don't know how, how the arguments have swayed people. What do you think, Dave? You gonna take the over or the under 55 and a half? I should have done some research here and, and seen how many Republican senators are, are planning on retiring because <laughs> I, th- I think that would help out with the prediction. I, I, I saw me, that. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Shelby, Shelby yeah. is. And, and then, um, yeah, Pennsylvania. So I, I, I'll go over. I, I think you know, maybe call it the Peggy Noonan effect. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll say 57.43. So still 10 short. But yeah, I agree with you. I'm going to take the over. I think it'll be at least 56. My guess is you're probably right. There's going to be a, a surprising 57th vote. You know, the, the difficulty is that 44 of them have really said that it's unconstitutional. 
So if you say that, unless you change your mind on that point, you really shouldn't vote to convict, right? <laughs> Those aren't really simple questions. If, if the whole proceeding is unconstitutional, you should be voting um, to acquit. But you don't always get consistent behavior out of political animals. So I think 57 is not a bad number. I'm going to guess, I'll, I'll take 58 just to push it one more up and maybe another retiring senator or two in there or those that haven't announced it yet, but, but maybe thinking about retirement. But again, I think I agree with you. We're not going to see anything like two thirds unless there's a real disastrous argument made today in defense of the president. And even then, I don't think that would be enough. So is Lamar Alexander one of the, uh, one of the five? He's not. No, he's okay, not. Um, Cause I, uh, if I had to guess, uh, an individual who would vote for Alexander would be at the top of my list, that kind of surprise vote. So. Okay. All right. Good. We'll put you down for that. All right. Very good. Well, next week we will check in and we will see how we did on that and the rest of our predictions and observations. Thank you as always for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget we're on Instagram at democracy in America today. And you can also connect with us using email democracy in America today at gmail.com. Look forward to talking to you again next week. Mm-hmm.